can turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we'll pick up in verse 8 and finish chapter 13 today and bring to a conclusion what we started back in May when the idea was just to really speak on spiritual gifts. It was in my mind from a conversation I had with um, a longtime member here when I got here four years ago in the fall of 2019 and asked around um, of various people that had been here for a season what they would have hopes for to see in this church in five years. And the one gentleman that I was talking to mentioned he would just love for the legacy of this church to continue to be what it has been from the beginning for the last 47 or 48 years, which is a church that loves to serve, that loves to use the gifts that God has given it to serve others for their good and also serve the lost with the gospel. And that kind of stuck in my head uh, since that time and eventually uh, just dawned on me that the best way to encourage our people to serve is to preach on it. Imagine that. You could try to start some campaign and get everybody revved up and have posters around campus and things like that, but really, when it comes down to it, the only authority there is to command us and then to compel us to serve is the Word of God. It alone has the authority to lay a command on us for us to obey, and also it has the power through the Spirit to compel us to carry it out. No preacher has that authority or teacher or anybody in the church for that matter. And so it made sense to me to teach on it. So back in May, I taught through 1 Corinthians 12, first to explain spiritual gifts. For some people in the church, that was new, just to sit under the teaching of what are the spiritual gifts spoken of in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that Paul has to teach on when he says, I don't want you to be unaware right from the jump. He says, this is something that we shouldn't be ignorant of. And, but he grounds it and says, look, if we're going to get on this matter, we have to start with nobody can say anything about a spiritual gift if they first don't say that Jesus is Lord. And the whole thing starts with Christ. That's where it begins, and the whole thing is about Christ, as in the gifts are given by the Holy Spirit so that we can, what, build up the church, the body of Christ in love. That's how it works, and so that's what we saw in 1 Corinthians 12, and we came away without any doubt that the reason we are given spiritual gifts is not for us to boast in ourselves and the gifts that we have. It's ultimately to glorify God, to boast in Christ, but to build the church up. And that's right there in verse 7 of chapter 12. Each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So for the church in Corinth, they had lost sight that these gifts are not about me. It's a gift from God to be saved, as we already mentioned today in, in thinking of our brother George and any of us here. But on top of that, he gives us the Holy Spirit to indwell in us, who then gives us his gifts. And those gifts were varied that we saw, all kinds of different gifts for all different effects. But verse 11, the one spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, individually just as he wills. And then we walk through the rest of chapter 12 to show where gifts can go bad when it becomes about me and I compare myself to somebody or whether that's to uh, look up and be jealous of what they have that I don't have and to malign them. Or to look down and see the people that don't have the gifts that I have and think less of them. Either way, there's something that's lacking there. And it got to the point of the end of chapter 12 where he says, look, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater here. The gifts are good. In fact, earnestly desire the greater gifts. That is how the church is built up. And that is how the gospel goes out. 
But there's something at the heart of these gifts that you can't miss. And that is, at the end of verse 31, the more excellent way, the way of love. And so chapter 13 has been Paul proving his point that though spiritual gifts are good, what's inside the gift is even better. And it's God's love for us in Christ. It's the message of the gospel. And the gifts carry that along in all forms and fashions. But if you, if you think it's just about the gift and you forget the giver that's behind it and the gift that he wants to give inside of it, you've lost the big picture of it. It's about love. And that's why chapter 13 sits right here in between 12 and 14 talking about love. So it got in my mind a picture maybe if you um, were to go to the mall, if you're like me, that you don't have the natural gift of wrapping your own presents in the mall. I don't know if this is still even around or if it's ceased, but there would be a person in the middle of it that would be uh, wrapping gifts for you. And uh, how strange would it be if I went and just walked up to the guy and said, hey, would you just make me a really nice gift box? And he's like, what are you going to put inside it? I'm like, nothing, but just jazz it up. Make it look really great. Like, get my kids really excited. In fact, I'm going to get some really big ones. So they're really amazed by the wrapping and think it's going to be awesome. And they open that gift up and there's another gift inside, maybe, you know, and the They just keep opening empty boxes. And that's really what gifts are without the grace of love. They look like it. They shine like it. But they're hollow inside. They're empty, Paul says. He comes right out of the gates with that in 13, 1 to 3. Look, you can have all all the gifts, tongues of men and angels. You can have prophecy, know everything. You can give it all away. But that gift gets opened up and it's empty. And that was the problem in Corinth, and that could be problematic in our church, any church. And so he shows that love is necessary in 1 to 3, and then when he wants us to be amazed of how great love is, he gives us 15 qualities of love from verses 4 to 7, and that's what we've been in the last few weeks. But now to show one last priority that love should have in our lives, that takes priority over and above our gifts is that when you just lay the gifts next to the graces, when you look at all the things that God can use us to do and the gifts that he gives us, but if you compare it next to love, only one's going to last forever. And it comes down to this in verses 8 to 13 where we end today. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are temporary, but the gift of God's love is forever. It's simple, but we got to get that. Or we'll get what we're doing here very wrong. It's that the gifts of the Holy Spirit, they are just temporary. They are a means to a greater end. And that greater end is to know God and love God and enjoy God forever, long after the gifts are gone. And that's where Paul concludes this serendipitous chapter on love is if he hasn't proven it by way of showing the necessity or the quality of love, now he's going to show the permanency of love. And he's just going to leave you with that and say, look, if I'm putting in this, remember, you've got to be, be back in Corinth, who he's writing this to. All of the boasting you're doing and all of these gifts you have, they're going to be gone. And if you've left love behind, what are you going to be left with now? But most importantly, forever.
Because as Jonathan Edwards wrote, heaven is a world of love. And and the point of that sermon he preached, which turned into a book, which you could even um, type heaven is a world of love into Google today and and get the PDF. And it's an amazing sermon that's on this section. And I could have uh, just read it for you today and you would have been edified. But the point of what he writes is, look, the, the chief gift of the fruit of the Holy Spirit that will be everlasting is divine love. So follow along with me this morning as I read verses 8 to 13 to uh, set these verses in our minds. And then we'll just walk through them as Paul presents them like a preacher. He explains the longevity of love. He illustrates it. And then in the last verse, he applies it. And that's really what preaching is. You explain the text. You illustrate the text. And then you apply the text. And actually, you have that here in verses 8 to 13. So that's kind of how we'll work our way through it is a framework. So follow along with me starting in verse 8. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love, abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God and the love of God will endure forever. May he bless the preaching and hearing of it this morning. Let's look at the explanation Paul begins with in verse 8, and it's a simple explanation of why love is more excellent than the gifts, if you put them next to each other, and it's because love never fails, right there in verse 8, right to the point, to make his final point on the permanency of love. Uh, There's not much you can do to improve upon the simplicity and power of that statement. God's love, the love he has for us, the love we will have in eternity back to him, never will fail. It's a word that would, in the time of Paul, have been used in Greek writing to talk about something falling over due to it uh, dying, like a flower that we talked about last week. Remember we used the illustration of a flower? The middle of that flower, its lifeblood is is the stem that comes up into the middle and its love rejoices with the truth. And then out of that comes love can bear all things and believe all things and hope all things and endure all things. Well, imagine that flower of love falling over and dying. He says, but that's not how God's love works, beloved. It'll never fail. It'll never fall over. It'll never be like the leaves that we are about to rejoice in the change of colors around us uh, this wonderful time in western North Carolina, even though it means the death of those leaves. Life draining out of them and falling to the ground. And that's what he's saying. Love will never do. It'll never fall to the ground. Uh, There is no change of season with the love of God. It's green forever. And, And that's the main point he makes to establish love's permanent quality. It will never fail. And then he contrasts it with 
That which will be done away with. He uses that word done away, or maybe in your ESV it says it'll pass away. But I like done away because there's a force in the Greek word there of something. uh, It's a passive verb. As the things that will be done away with, prophecy, tongues, knowledge, action is being done to it. A passive verb. I receive the catch as the wide receiver. A subject is throwing it to me. And so prophecy, tongues, and knowledge, these gifts are not autonomous, as in they don't decide for themselves when they will go out of operation. The God who starts them and sustains them will be the God that one day will stop them. They don't decide for themselves. God's in control of how long these gifts will operate. And Paul's point is, you Corinthians who are making such a big deal about your spiritual gifts are acting like they are the ultimate display of spirituality. And if you have those, you are set. And they're good. They're not hating on the gifts. He's just saying, look in verse 9, um, These gifts, they help you to know in part and prophesy in part. They do serve a purpose, but it's a temporary purpose. And that temporary purpose is they carry along what? The message of the gospel, the love of God in Christ. The message that the world needs to hear to be saved. But the message that the church needs to be reminded of so that we don't get puffed up in our knowledge like they were. And that we lose sight of what is, what, what is holding all this together. It's, it's God's love. It's not my practice of my spiritual gifts. As if they were an end to themselves. They promote an eternal purpose because, and it comes together at this thought, beloved. That at the heart of eternity in your relationship with God is a relationship of love. It's not a relationship of you using your spiritual gifts anymore. They serve a temporary purpose. And, and, and it's needed. We look no farther than this morning, celebrating George being with us this morning, that the gospel found him. A preacher came, as, as Romans says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And how will they hear if no preacher goes? No evangelists, no disciple makers, no givers, no prayers, any of those gifts. If they're not there, yeah, then the gospel comes to a screeching halt. And so those gifts are meant to carry along the greatest news there is in the world that we can be saved. But it's only for a season and for a reason that God has those gifts in operation. And they will be done away with in His time. And when is that time going to be? Verse 10 answers it. When the perfect comes, the partial will be done away the big question then is what's the perfect because that's when we start to put together the pieces of verses eight and nine we have something that's in part we use these gifts and they they have a partial purpose an incomplete purpose Uh, they they don't exist unto themselves and for their own ends they're a means to an end and they'll come to an end when the perfect comes so the question is when will the perfect come well First, what is the perfect? The hard part about that is you look around, and that's what we do when we study our Bibles. We don't just come up with our own thoughts. Well, I think the perfect is this. No, you look at verse 10 and you say, "Um, what are we talking about in chapter 13? Well, we're talking about 
believers using their gifts and lacking love, which means there is some, something being left out of this believer's life. And so it would seem that perfect has to do with these Corinthians growing and being perfected and made complete. Yet in the church, there are some that interpret the perfect as the Bible. And that's foreign to 1 Corinthians. In fact, it is to the rest of the New Testament. You can't go through the New Testament and find the perfect and associate it in any spot with this idea of the Bible. Once it's completed, we have the perfect and we won't need people to speak in tongues or prophesy or have knowledge or teach or preach. You just don't find it there. And so you can cross that one off the list. It would have been if you would have went up to a person in Corinth when somebody would have been reading this and be like, hey, what's the perfect? Good chance nine out of the ten of them wouldn't have been like, oh, it's the closed canon. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've got a prophetic vision of the future, and, and the church will come together and decide which books are in and which are out. Hmm, that dog don't hunt. How about the perfect is uh, a perfect church? Well, we are talking about the church because it's a letter to a church, but that would imply that the church could be perfect now if we could just get our act together, which is not a reality in the New Testament, and it's never happened in church history seems that we need the spiritual gifts for the perfecting of the church. Back to what I said at the beginning, we're in the immediacy of talking about believers using their spiritual gifts, but in being puffed up, think they might have what? Arrived. And he says, oh no, no. I mean, you are called to be perfect. Matthew 5, 48, they would have known that use of the word. With the apostolic teaching that was in the churches, you don't think the apostles would have showed up and had a word from Jesus' most well-known sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, and that they wouldn't have been familiar with Matthew 5.48? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, that might make sense that that would be residing in the mind of a person in Corinth. That, oh, the perfection is what I'm going to be one day. One day. One day perfected. Romans 8 would call that would call that the believer's glorification, right? When one day we are glorified and we have perfect minds, bodies, everything, and we can perfectly obey God by perfectly loving Him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So when that perfect comes, and now do you see how it fits together? What good would spiritual gifts be when you're in heaven one day? Oh, what's teaching going to do for you that being in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ won't? No evangelism there. In perfect love, as in love is the more excellent way, we will need no exhortation or correction or whatever you could try to think up. And you go, no, yeah, I could see Paul's point. Those are all good and temporary means to the greater end that we will be made like Christ one day there. And you also see how then when that word perfect is used in other spots like Colossians 1.28, that Paul says, we proclaim him right now in the church. We proclaim Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. Why? So that we may present every man, there's that word, complete in Christ. Perfected. A part of our job right now. Why you show up for church. Why it's important to be here. Attentive, plugged in, checked in. Is because my job by the gifting God has given me is to present you complete in Christ through the preaching and teaching of the word of God. That's why we have life groups throughout the rest of the week because we are constantly in one another's lives, yes, striving 
for perfection, even though we know down here we'll never achieve it. Because Paul says back in 1 Corinthians 13, when that perfect comes, you won't be here anymore. You will be in a perfect state of sinlessness called glorification. You'll be in a perfect place of sinlessness called heaven. But in the meantime, our spiritual gifts are imperfect means to prepare us for that perfect end. Given to evangelize the lost, equip the church, but they aren't the goal in and of themselves. The Corinthian Christians made them an end to themselves. So because of that, instead of reaching lost people in Corinth, the church itself was lost. And instead of building up and edifying the church, when you read this entire letter, you had a church that was tearing itself apart because they lost love, the more excellent way, the preeminent virtue. So with that on our minds in that first section, maybe a few application points to let it sink in a bit. And just ask yourself the question, do I put a greater value on my spiritual gifts than on the spiritual grace of love? We could do that, especially when we kind of get in our zone. You know, we have a role to play in our spiritual service here, and if we're doing it long enough, like anything, we can make an idol of it, and we find our identity in it, don't we? Oh, this is what I do here. And that identity then becomes a back off at times. And then you start to see the virtue of love fall apart, don't you? If you get wrapped up in your identity and how you serve here and using your gifts and somebody new comes around and they're gifted like you are and, you know, it could happen in any way. Uh, in my world, it can be somebody else to teach and love can be envious or jealous of somebody else's giftedness. Or maybe you are in charge of something here and this has been your ministry to do and you do it a certain way and... You just lock into it, and that's your ministry, and somebody is coming along, and they have a new idea, and it actually might improve things. But you're like, no, this is the way we've always done it. And love falls away because love's not rude. And you've been rude to someone because you say, no, I do it this way. Oh, really? Oh, so I didn't know that the, um, your status and service in that spiritual gift is going to last forever. Or... Maybe it could be people who love you and speak the truth in love come to give you constructive criticism about how you're doing a certain ministry. And you're rebuffed by it, and you get angry with them, and then you have to go back to love is patient and love is kind. Do you see how these fit together really practically? When you see how we can get wrapped up in, like the Corinthians, our spiritual gifts, lose love, and then they end up being counterproductive. That's a hard question. Where have I seen my spiritual gifts actually become counterproductive to the work of love in and through me? Because self-love is just right around the corner, or I should say in the weed patch of self-love, it's just right under the surface of our hearts, isn't it? And it can happen to us in any way, shape, or form. So that's the explanation of love's longevity. Now let's look at Paul Illustrated to um, drive home this point that there's an incompletion to our maturity in Christ and our, the clarity with which we live our Christian life. 
And that's, those are the two ideas that come across in verses 11 and 12 when Paul illustrates love's longevity. There's something that is going to be complete that the gifts can't give us. And that's, in verse 11, an illustration of maturity. And in verse 12, an illustration of clarity. So let's look at verse 11. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. And he's just saying not these, these aren't bad things. This is just the reality of being a child. But what do children need to do? They need to become a man and do away with childish things. And so Corinthian Christians who are acting rather selfish, childish, you need to grow up. Because if you don't understand the temporality of spiritual gifts versus the eternality of grace of love, you're going to be stunted in your growth because you're selfish in your actions. It's like a book I often hear my wife reading to my kids far more than me called The Minosaur. And it spoke to me this week because it was being read in the other room. And it's about this big and bold and brash dinosaur who comes barreling into school and takes all the toys and ends up lonely and empty atop a mountain of toys at recess. Nobody wants to play with the Minosaur. And I thought that's really what Paul is getting across here. The childishness and immaturity that if we don't understand love's superiority to our gifts, we'll find ourselves in a church just as empty. I promise you that. Because love attracts. Pride does what? Pushes away. So maybe a way to ask yourself a heart question this morning is, is my maturity, my perceived maturity, is, do I look around me and see more people drifting away from me rather than being drawn in? I mean, that's that you have to work from root to fruit and say, if I can't figure out the root of my own heart, maybe I just need to look at the fruit of my life. And this could go beyond even the church walls to relationships and family and friends and workplace, especially people you've been around a while. That, you know, you get past the the superficial, oh, that guy's cool or she's nice. But like you've been around them long enough and served with them long enough in the church. We all know we're sinners here, but in your perceived maturity of the time you've spent serving and, and what you do and how the inflated way we can look at it, do you look around and say, it seems to be getting lonely. Are people being drawn towards me or drifting away from me? And what does pride want to do with that? It'll look around and it'll say, ah, you know, it's just because I'm so mature. Like they just can't keep up. Hmm. You know, I've, like, I, I mean, they're cool and all, but like, I probably don't have the same friends I used to have in the church. And, you know, because like I'm just outgrowing them. <sighs> That's how twisted pride is, right? It'll find excuse after excuse when really the facts are right around us to see. When love is lacking. So it's an element of maturity he illustrates with to try to drive the point home to them. And you can grow all you want in your spiritual gifts, but if you're leaving grace behind, the grace of love, your growth is stunted, and it's probably because of pride. Two, he uses an illustration in verse 12 of clarity. Another way to humble them, um, not hurt them. He says, now we see in a mirror dimly. He moves the illustration. And now one day we'll see face to face. Now we know in part, but then we'll know fully. What's he talking about here? Well, the illustration is a mirror, and then in the time of Paul, not really 
amazing mirrors like we have today that you get a good look at yourself. Oftentimes, especially the common person in Corinth might have had just a polished piece of metal to look into. Kind of like the view, you know, the, you get, um, and not that I've ever done this, but when you walk by a car and kind of check yourself out. Guilty as charged. But he's saying that that's kind of the dim, dark look you get. That word dimly, it's a word actually that meant a riddle, an enigma. And um, that's what it is when you think that you know more than you know. Uh, you know the words in that riddle, but you don't know what it means. You can't get to the truth of it. Or you see yourself in that polished metal reflection and you think it's accurate, but it's really not because it's just a reflection. It's not really what you look like. And he's saying, look, Corinthians, you may have knowledge. It kind of, he, he finally gets in verse 12, he leaves behind tongues and prophecy and just says, look, if this is about you thinking you're superior because of your knowledge, you know in part. And that's just the facts because the perfect hasn't come and you haven't seen the Lord face to face. You will. Revelation 22, 4. Then we will see his face. And what will happen in that time? 1 John 3, 2. We know that when Jesus appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Just as he is. We'll have that completion. We'll know fully. But right now we know in part. And we get how that works in in life is we can know some things about someone. We could hear about them. We could study them. But until you meet them face to face, you don't really know them, do you? George, we've been talking about George for years here. But now that you've seen him and, and, and watched him sing and see his love for the Lord, that surpasses anything we've told you about him for the last few years. It's just being around him face to face. It's being in that person's presence that you go, ah, that's what it's like. And it doesn't mean that everything you learned about them prior to that isn't true. I mean, that's just when... Um, you know, we talk ourselves up and somebody then talks us up and that's not really what we're like. But in reality, what Paul is saying here is he's saying nothing can replace what you're going to see when the perfection comes. When you're there in the presence of Christ, then you'll see him as he is. Right now, you know in part. Now, that also doesn't say that we should stop our efforts to know. So read, study, take notes. But when the perfect comes... You'll know fully. I was having a sweet conversation with a saint in this church this week. She came to ask, uh, you know, a semi-related question about um, the chosen and, you know, seeing depictions of Christ, visual ones, and how should we feel about that? But the best part of our conversation was when we got to this. And I said, look, you do what you want with that. I mean, I, you know, iconography in the church has been around for a long time. But I'm not that down with it because of verses like this. The, I, I see him with eyes of faith. When we sing, Behold Our God, I don't need like a mega screen behind me shooting butterflies across it in sunsets. And nor should you. How, how do you sing, Behold Our God, and have anything welling up inside your mind to see and heart to see other than what the scriptures have put in there? And to blow your mind 
Because we just have something impartial, but then be excited when the fullness comes. And so when we're going to know him fully, I mean, that's going to rock our world. And also, I'll be out of a job. You won't need, I mean, in heaven, you'll, you'll come up to me and say, hey, remember when you preached on uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 8? You actually got it wrong because I fully know. And I'll say, but love keeps no record of wrongs. Gotcha. <laughs> that's what Paul's getting at here. But he has one last thing to add to it that just kind of fills our hearts with joy. He says, that same time, whenever we'll know in full, um, we might make a connection to having been fully known by him. As in the imperfect maturity that we have right now and the incomplete picture we have right now in our knowledge. Um, the amazing thing about our God is that he has a perfect picture of us and loves us still. He knows everything about us. Uh, all of our sins, all of our weaknesses, sees right through the way we pretty ourselves up to come to church on Sunday. I mean, just right through it. To the heart behind it. We're fully known to him. And that should be an amazing thought in and of itself to know what it is to be loved by a God who sees you completely as you are. Not as you aspire to be. Just he sees you exactly as you are right now. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, in a chapter called Knowing and Being Known, writes this. What matters supremely, therefore, is not in the last analysis the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that he knows me. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me. And there is no moment when his eye is off me or his attention distracted from me. And no moment, therefore, when his care falters. This is momentous knowledge. There is unspeakable comfort, the sort of comfort that energizes, be it said, not enervates, and knowing that God is constantly taking knowledge of me in love and watching over me for my good. There is tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery now can disillusion him about me in the way I am so often disillusioned about myself and quench his determination to bless me. Wow. That's a thought. I mean, it's a great book, but just save that paragraph. To be known by God, despite my incomplete love for him and lack of clarity in knowing him, God loves me completely as if I was mature enough to receive it and wise enough to understand it. To be fully known by him. And then take that thought this morning and hold on to the thought that somehow, someday, in perfection, you'll get to reciprocate. That's why Paul could say these, these light and momentary afflictions are nothing to be compared with the weight of glory. Because this is all temporary. But to know him as I've been fully known by him one day, 
Nothing holds a candle to that. When his sun rises, all lights are extinguished. Last point, the application. Love will produce an eternal quality that gifts won't. In fact, there's no mention of the gifts now. He says, listen, um, Corinthians, my last plea with you. When all has been done away, all the partial, all the incomplete, what's going to remain? What's going to, one of our favorite words around here, abide? Faith, hope, and love. And he brings these three back. Not sure why. Um, some say he, he chooses three graces to compare against the three gifts in verse 8, but I don't know. Maybe I think the greater case is that he links faith and hope together to love because they are attached to love in verse 7, like the petals to the flower. That love believes all things. There's faith. Love hopes all things. So how do faith, hope, and love work together and yet love is the greatest of them? We'll ask the question, um, what's the target that faith aims at? What's the object of our faith? Who's the object of our faith? It's Jesus. And at the heart of the object of our faith, Jesus Christ, what, what are we aiming at? His love for us. That he died for us. That he sent his son for us. So why faith is mentioned, perhaps, is because the aim of faith is the love of God in Christ. And then hope. When you drop the anchor of hope, what do you hope it lands on? Hope doesn't land on hope. Hope's just the anchor. Where's the anchor land? It lands on the rock of Christ. And, and what's the strongest part of that rock? His love for you. So the, the aim of faith is love. And the anchor of hope is love. And so they all are inseparable, but love is the greatest of the three of them. And he doesn't say, at least we get in this verse, that um, you know, hope and faith will pass away in eternity. But it won't be the same kind of faith and hope, will it? Because faith will become sight. And even in Romans 8, it says, what's hope if what has been hoped for is now seen? So some form of faith and hope remain there, but it's going to be perfected because love will be perfected. So the only thing maybe left to work through this morning that could be in our hearts, um, when you think about the permanency of love, the common human experience that we might have already run into, most of you have, is that you've loved things that you've lost. So there could be a certain fear with love. If you've lost someone, especially, but something even, some, some dream, some hope, some, whatever, this, you, were, you were holding out hope, you had faith in it, and even in fact, whatever this thing was that you loved, you lost it, and it could make you what? Yeah, painful, sad, broken, gun-shy, reticent to what? Love again. And especially to, to trust a God and to put your hope in a God who you feel that his love maybe isn't for you to the degree that you thought it would be. So, um, do you stop loving because of that pain? I turn to C.S. Lewis who knew the pain of losing what he loved. He lost his mother at age nine. He lost close friends he fought alongside in World War I. But the loss he grieved most with his, was his beloved wife, Joy, to cancer. 
It led to him writing two books in particular about that, The Problem of Pain and A Grief Observed. But it was in his book, The Four Loves, where he brings out a point to connect to the pain of loss versus the permanency of love. And he writes, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. And if you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up in the safe, in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, and airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable. Impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and worries of love is hell. When you think about hell, what is the, the absence of? It's not the absence of the presence of God and the holiness of God and the justice of God and the wrath of God. It is absent of the love of God. So what he's trying to draw out by way of this meditation is that if you become loveless, loveless to God first and foremost, you put that love in a place you think it's going to be safe so it won't be hurt again, but what happens to it? It hardens. That's why as believers we're warned against letting our love grow cold, but as an unbeliever here, if you're not in Christ today, I mean, that's the state of your heart. It's locked up in that coffin. It's in that safe. Because you don't love God. And you may sit there and say, yeah, preacher, I have a reason not to. Maybe you do. But God has a reason that you should give him a chance if you're not in Christ today. Because every reason you could take off the table of how maybe you've been let down, heartbroken, maybe even feel like the church had something to do with that. Who knows what it is? But the one thing you can't cross off the list is that God doesn't love you because he sent his son to prove it. Christ went to the cross to demonstrate it. So every other, every other thing you might have expected from God, you could say it feels like it's been dashed. But weighed against that is this truth that the greatest of these is love and God demonstrated his love for you and that while a sinner, Christ died. So that would be my rebuttal. Even if you're heartbroken, even if you're mad, God's son died so that you could be forgiven. Do you believe that? Love can give you hope today. In fact, love would be the grounds of your faith today. Not just some out there distant love, but the love of God in Christ. That's the good news of the gospel this morning. And you can trust him today. You can call out to him right where you're seated. And say, you know what? I might not believe anything else, but I believe this, that if you sent your son to die for me, and I need forgiven, I know my sin, then I can trust you. And that love will never fail. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the good news of the gospel.
Thank you for the hope that it gives us because it's anchored in Christ. Thank you for the faith that we draw from it because its aim is Christ. In Christ, we thank you that you loved us and died for us, your perfect life for our sinful life. Your death that took the wrath of God satisfied it. And then your resurrection so that we will rise with you one day. All of it is there and all of it is for your Father's glory and our good. So thank you for bringing us back to your gospel this morning. May it refresh our hearts.